Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. We are continuing in our series uh, through the Bible in a year, but uh, in a mini-series called uh, Prophets and Kings, in which we are examining the story of Israel, um, who Israel was supposed to be, and the role that they were intended to play within the biblical storyline. So we'll pick up this morning in uh, 1 Samuel 8, verse 1, which uh, is about 25% of the way through your Bible. So you can use the table of contents on my NIV Bible. It's around page 270. Uh, So I don't know what it'll be for you. But uh, 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we examined uh, the birth of the nation of Israel uh, through the Exodus and the Passover. Uh, Two weeks ago, we highlighted the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And then if you were here last week, it was all about the law that was attached to that covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. Uh, And we were trying to place kind of Israel's story, even the covenant and the law attached to it, within uh, the broader story of God's rescue plan for humanity uh, that begun most clearly through Abraham, but continues uh, and involves us today. And uh, the reason that Israel exists is to be God's special people. Uh, who walk in relationship with him, and by walking in relationship with him and following the laws attached to the covenant, uh, they are going to, or they're intended to, uh, display God to the world. And they're supposed to be, uh, to quote scripture, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which operates in just such a way that the rest of the world is pointed back to the one true God of the universe. And it's sort of in that context and in the shadow of that covenant and that relationship that the rest of the Old Testament is written. If you don't grasp who Israel was supposed to be and what Israel was supposed to be doing, then the rest of the Old Testament doesn't make a ton of sense. But when we uh, take the time to slow down and think about Israel's meaning and purpose, then the rest of the Old Testament and the Bible as a whole uh, starts to come to life in a new way, uh, including the passage that we are going to read today. We pick up in uh, 1 Samuel 8 verse 1. Um, And as we're picking up in the book of Samuel, there's a prophet named Samuel, who is helping to lead the nation of Israel as a servant of God, uh, but after years of serving in this way, his time has come. Uh, This is chapter 8, verse 1. It says, when Samuel, who's the prophet currently leading Israel, when he grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. 
But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons did not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. The Lord told, them, told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so now they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. And if you continue reading in the passage, he just goes on and on and on. He says, he'll make your sons serve in the military. He'll make other of your sons serve in his fields and some in his factories. He's going to take your daughters and make them his servants. He's going to take the best of your fields. Then he's going to claim them for himself. He'll create a heavy tax and he'll take the best of your, of your things. You'll basically feel like you're enslaved to him, and you're not going to like it. And if you look down to verse 19, you get to see the response. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the, th- the things that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. In the aftermath of this exchange, Israel gets its first king, a man named Saul. More on him in a second. But on the surface, uh, this looks really normal, right? You've got a freed group of slaves. Uh, They're now officially a nation. They want organization. They want structure. They want leadership. So why not appoint a king? It seems to make sense. It seems practical. Seems like it's not a big deal. But when you zoom out and see the storyline of the Bible for what it is, this actually becomes a very big deal. You see, in the beginning, when you open up your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, what we see is this picture of God creating the universe, but he's pictured in ancient terms as a king, uh, as one who speaks and, and things happen, things come into being. When he speaks, creation responds. And then he makes human beings in his image, in his likeness, to rule and reign over creation, which is very kingly language. 
but they were to do it as his partners and allies. They actually exist as an extension of God, as an extension of his rulership. They were to be his ambassadors in the world. Uh, Their purpose was to see his kingdom come, so to speak, into creation. But these first uh, subjects and allies, Adam and Eve, they rebel and they throw off God's kingship. They actually choose the way of self-sufficiency. They want to be their own kings. And so they reject uh, God's kingship and from there forward, human beings uh, spiral down into darkness. And as they are spiraling down into darkness, God chooses a man named Abraham and he makes a covenant with Abraham. This is 12 chapters into the story. And he basically says, hey, through you and your descendants, I'm going to turn this thing around. I'm going to use you and your descendants and one descendant in particular to call the world back to myself. And so God eventually frees Abraham's descendants from slavery in Egypt, but it's with a purpose. They are to be his special people. They are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom. Well, that's interesting language. In and through Israel, God is creating a new kingdom people who will love him and obey him and operate under his kingship, just like Adam and Eve were supposed to have done. And as they do, this kingdom was meant to expand and begin to touch and transform all the nations on earth. That was the goal. And so God, as king, frees his people. He makes them his own nation, a kingdom of priests. And the goal was for God himself to be their king. And so he chooses Moses, if you remember the Exodus story. But it's really God who's doing the speaking and the acting and the liberating Moses is just there as a mouthpiece, as a translator. But God is the one who set out to do those things. And as they get out into the desert, it's actually God who guides them in a pillar of fire and a a cloud. It's actually God who's giving them food and water. He's acting as king over the nation of Israel. And as they approach the promised land, which is full of uh, many stronger people than they are, God reminds Israel that though the odds are completely stacked against them, that he's the one who's going to lead them into the promised land, that he's the one who's actually going to fight their battles for them. And so as you read through the books of the Bible that that are about Israel entering the land, you get a bunch of really strange battle stories about Israel sending a little shepherd boy out to face Goliath, uh, and Israel 
at one point banging together pots and pans to scare away a much larger army. And it's just kind of one after the next of these really odd stories, and yet somehow God continues to give them victory. In fact, in some of their battles, they literally don't do anything. They just stay in their camp, and somehow the enemy ends up running. Somehow their enemies end up getting confused and fighting one another to the death. Somehow they keep gaining victory as this small, vulnerable group of slaves. How? Well, God is acting as their king. He's actually going out before them and fighting their battles. And as they enter the land, God continues to lead the people through prophets and through judges um, who are all human beings, to be sure, but none of them are kings. And their job the prophets and the judges, is to constantly look to God and to respond to his leadership, to operate under his kingship in leading Israel. So as a quick recap, here is the story of the scriptures so far. The scriptures open with Genesis where we see the king creating uh, and in a sense sort of creating and setting up his kingdom and then being rejected. Then you have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in which God is forming Israel into his kingdom covenant people. After that, you have the book of Joshua, where God leads the people into the promised land and fights their battles for them. Then you have the book of Judges, which is a long list of judges who uh, aren't like our judges at all. They're, they're closer to military leaders um, than our modern-day judges, but they're supposed to lead under God's kingship. And then you get Samuel, who's this prophet anointed to lead Israel again under God's kingship. And that brings us up to the passage that we read this morning, where the people come to Samuel and say, appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Quick question, is Israel supposed to be like all the other nations? No. That's the point. They are unique in that they are a kingdom of priests and God himself was to be their king, which is why Samuel is so upset by the request. And, and that's why God responds the way that he does. He says, hey, it's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And in fact, that's what they've been doing ever since they left Egypt. And now I'm going to give them what they want, and they're not going to like it. So, a man named Saul is appointed as their first king. Is Saul a good guy or a bad guy? Both. That's a really good answer. Saul actually starts really good, right? For those of you who know the story. But, uh, pretty quickly, he shows to be unresponsive to God and unrepentant for his sin. And, and that would be a problem for any human being, right? But it's an even bigger deal because Saul is leading 
a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Saul is almost taking God's place on the throne over Israel. Which means, if you really think about the grand scheme of humanity, the person on that throne should be the most soft-hearted and most responsive and most repentant human being on the planet. Does that describe Saul? No. As a result... He is going to be replaced. And eventually, he's replaced by David. Is uh, David a good guy or a bad guy? Both, I guess. Every human being is. Uh, For the most part, in Scripture and throughout history, David has been celebrated uh, as a really good guy. He is um, probably the best king that Israel has in all of its history. And in part, he is the best because he is responsive to God and he is soft-hearted. David is filled with, with imperfection. At one point, he commits adultery and murder. He, he is not free from sin in any sense of the word. But you see the way he's contrasted with Saul. He's he's a really good king over Israel because he's responsive to God and he's repentant for his sin. When he's confronted with his sin, he repents. When he sees God leading somewhere or doing something, he responds. And that makes him Israel's greatest king. But I know what you're thinking. David is only the second king in what amounts to thousands of years of Israelite history. So what about all the others that come after him? Well, since you asked, here they are. I'm going to sum up a couple thousand years of Israelite history in a couple hundred pages of your Bibles in a couple minutes. In the story of Israel, uh, first Israel leaves Egypt, is brought through the desert and enters the land. Uh, After they settle into the land, there is a long list of judges that spans the course of about 300 years. And there's a few bright moments along the way, but they are mostly, uh, almost entirely bad. Then you get Samuel, the prophet, which is where we picked up today, who's good. He appoints the first king over Israel, Saul, who turns out to be bad. He's replaced by the second king of Israel, David, who turns out to be good. And then he's eventually succeeded by his son, Solomon, who starts off really good and then over time and into his old age turns really bad. So these are the first three kings of Israel. At the end of Solomon's reign, uh, things start to spiral into chaos, and the nation of Israel, this kingdom of priests and holy nation, actually breaks in two. Uh, The kingdom splits, and from here forward, we're going to read about almost two different kingdoms. You have Judah in the south, who is sometimes called Israel, uh, and then in the north, you have Israel, if that's not confusing. But 
This is their story. And so if you're going to trace the kings from here forward, you're actually going to see two different lines of kings. Um, and we'll take Judah's kings first. So the kings of Judah, you have, um, there they are, Rehoboam, who was bad, Abijah, who was bad, Asa, who was good, Jehoshaphat, who was good, Jehoram, who was bad, Ahaziah, who was bad, Athaliah, who was bad, Joash, who was bad, Amaziah, who was bad, Uzziah, who was good, Jotham, who was good, Ahaz, who was bad, Hezekiah, who was good, Manasseh, who was bad, Amon, who was bad, Josiah, who was good, Jehoahaz, who was bad, Jehoiakim, who was bad, Jehoiachin, who was bad, and Zedekiah, who was also bad. Each one of those who was bad, quote, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And after this long, sad history, after Zedekiah, they go into exile. They're removed from the land. So in Judah, in the southern half, roughly one in three kings are put in any sort of positive light. And if you think that's sad, wait till you see the northern half of the kingdom. The northern half of the kingdom had 19 kings, so about the same as the southern half. These are spanning several centuries. And uh, the northern half is even easier to sum up because every single one of them was bad. Southern kingdom, maybe batting 25%. Northern kingdom, zero. Several centuries, generation after generation of bad kings before they are also taken into exile. Everything I'm trying to sum up right now, this is First and Second Samuel, this is First and Second Kings. Uh, this is First and Second Chronicles. It is a long list of bad kings. And it's so easy to get lost in these books and just think, "What the heck am I reading right now? Why am I reading hundreds of pages of one king after the next who chose what was evil? I'm not even sure how much I care about this. But what we have to remember is that Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests and that God himself wanted to be their king. And so not only as a nation did they reject God's kingship uh, very clearly and decisively, uh, but eventually they get beyond that and they get to this place where they say, hey, we, we don't even care to consult God when choosing our king. I mean, at that point, they're not even pretending. Israel is literally saying, hey, we want a human king so that we can be like all the other nations and we can have someone who will go before us and fight our battles. And God's standing right there saying, I, I'm right here. I am your king and I've been fighting your battles. But they won't seek God and they won't trust God. And instead they reject his kingship and they worship false gods. 
And that's basically what the rest of the Old Testament is about, about how this drama plays out. After the books that I just summed up, after Kings and Chronicles, uh, most of the rest of the New Testament is going to be the books of the prophets. And the prophets, which we'll study more in depth in the coming weeks in our next mini-series, the, the prophets were people called by God to be his mouthpiece and, and go to Israel and go to Israel's kings and say, you've forgotten. You've forgotten about the covenant. You've forgotten who you were supposed to be. You've forgotten how this was supposed to work. You've forgotten your king. Over and over again, prophet after prophet, book after book, hundreds of pages worth of prophetic writings, them calling Israel back to be a holy nation, to be a set-apart people, to be a kingdom of priests with God as their king. You see, if Israel had actually walked in the ways they were supposed to, they would have displayed God's wisdom and God's beauty to the world. And all of the other nations in the world would have begun to take note and say, oh my gosh, there's something here. There's something about this God. And if you would have gone to ancient Israel and they were doing their job, you would have seen it on display. And then you would have looked to the throne and it would have been empty. Hey, wait a second. Who's in charge around here? Who's king over your nation? And the Israelites were supposed to say, God is. God is our king. And if you understand the original design of Israel, not only does the rest of the Old Testament make more sense, not only does does the agitation and unrest of the prophets begin to find its proper place, but as you look forward into the New Testament, the arrival of Jesus actually becomes more beautiful as well. Because the prophets, they didn't only bring critique. They didn't only bring criticism. They didn't only call for repentance. They also brought hope as well. And one after the next, these prophets who were called to Israel spoke of a future king who was to come. And in fact, God had gone to David, the second king of Israel, and said, David, you, one of your descendants, will be a king who will rule on the throne forever. And so from the second king onward, as as you go through this drama, as you go through this story, there's a sense in, in which we're waiting. And one after the next, after the next, we're saying, could this be the one? Could this be the one? Could this be the one? No, they did evil. No, they did evil. No, they failed. They know they did evil. Over and over again. Oh, now they're ripped from the land and they're in exile. After centuries of rejecting God. They're now in exile. But even in the exile, the prophets continued to say, no, he's still coming. This king who you've been waiting for, who will rule on the throne, he's still on his way. And eventually they're brought back from exile, back into the land, but they're still waiting. Where is he? Where is this one, this anointed king, this Messiah, this person from the line of David who's supposed to come and rule over Israel and rule over the nations and bring this this new peace and prosperity to the earth. And if you read through 
the writings of the prophets, um, it's actually kind of hard to tell what they're talking about. Who is this king going to be? Is this king divine or is he human? It's actually hard to tell. And yet, after centuries of, of heartache and bad kings and wrestling and exile and waiting in anticipation, at last, this king is born. And his birth doesn't occur in a palace, but it's well noted, marked by a star in the sky. And there are shepherds who come to his birth to signify that he is, in fact, the Lamb of God, come to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. But sometime later, the wise men arrive, not to signify that he is Savior, but to announce to the world that he is King. And this, this is the part that I typically miss. Because when I gave my life to Jesus, I understood very clearly that he was my savior. I understood that he had come in love to take my place for my sin. I I understood that that had been dealt with by him sacrificing himself. I saw him as my savior, but I didn't see him as king. And if you'd asked me back then why the Old Testament was important, I'd have told you that it wasn't important. And if you had asked me why all the events in Jesus' earthly life were important, all that stuff that happens between his birth and his death, hey, hey, what's all of that? Why is that important? I would have told you that it isn't important. I don't know, the, the, the miracles, the middle stuff, I don't know what that was. I guess he was just proving that he was divine. But the Old Testament, it doesn't really matter. Israel's story, it doesn't really matter. In fact, you, can, you could cut out most of the middle of the gospel accounts and it wouldn't really matter. All that stuff between his birth and his death on the cross doesn't have meaning or significance. And if you had asked me what the gospel was, I would have responded that Jesus died for my sin. And if you had asked me what the mission of God was in the world, I would have told you it was to tell other people that he had died for their sin. And if you had asked me what the overarching story of the entire Bible was, I would have told you that I didn't really know. And if you had asked me what Jesus had to do with everyday life, day in and day out, again, I would have told you, I don't really know. And as a result, there was a lot of stuff in my life that didn't really change. Lust, sexual sin, selfishness, the way I managed my money, it it shifted a little bit, got a little bit better, but not much. 
because I only saw Jesus as my Savior and I'd already been saved. Okay, you saved me. Thank you for doing that, Jesus. But now I think you're done with me. I don't think you need anything else from me. And I don't think I need anything else from you. So I guess we're done now. I'll see you when I die. But everything began to change for me when I learned to see Jesus as king. And all of a sudden, the Old Testament became important because I began to see the Bible as one unified story about king and kingdom. And and all of a sudden, uh, the, the middle parts of the gospel, in between his birth and his death, started to become really important Because I realized that Jesus was showing us what it looks like for his kingdom to come in a place. And I started noticing that Jesus himself actually preached the gospel. But but it didn't sound quite like the gospel that I was preaching. His version was brilliantly simple. He said, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Interesting. It was about a kingdom and a king. How is this kingdom going to spread? How is it going to break into this world and overtake the kingdom of darkness? Well, the cross and the resurrection are central. They're the key. They're the means by which God's kingdom advances. And in them, Jesus is actually made king. He actually conquers Satan's sin and death and becomes king over them through the cross and resurrection. He is now in the process of bringing all his enemies under his Feet. And in light of the cross and in light of his resurrection, what you see in history is that the church begins to explode across the Roman Empire. And as it does, millions of the first Christians were executed for their faith, put to death, many of them in public arenas. But it wasn't because they preached forgiveness. Their gospel was a simple one, just three words. Jesus is Lord. Or said another way, God is King. And if Jesus was Lord, it meant that Caesar was not Lord. And if God was King, then it meant that Caesar was not the true King. They were put to death in their millions for making a very real, very political claim about who was king of this world. And then you go back and reread the story of Jesus being executed. 
And you'll see that the Romans actually didn't care that he was claiming to be God. That didn't bother them. They weren't interested. He was put to death for claiming to be king. And now, if you ask me what the gospel is, I'd say it's all about the kingdom of God, where Jesus is king. And the cross and resurrection are the means by which his kingdom is breaking into this world. And if you ask me about the mission of God, I would say it's to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you ask me what Jesus has to do with everyday life, I'd say he has everything to do with everyday life because he's more than a savior. He's king. In fact, I don't know how I didn't see it before, but we're told that in the very process of salvation, that God rescues us from the dominion of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. The very process of salvation is about changing kingdoms from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of the Son. It's moving from Satan's kingdom to God's kingdom. It's coming under God's kingship. Okay, so I've given my life to Jesus. What do I do next? Well, according to the scriptures, you have a king. And you belong to a kingdom. So I'd ask the king what he's up to. And then I'd go from there. Hey, Jesus, what does it look like for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in my world as it is in heaven? That's it. I started asking that question and all of a sudden my life started to change in a meaningful way. Because I realized that I had to bring my sexuality under God's kingship and my finances under God's kingship and my pride and my self-sufficiency had to be brought under God's kingship and my finances and my fears and my self-doubt and my wounds and my baggage, all of it had to be brought under God's kingship. And I realized that the point of my life wasn't just doing what I wanted and waiting to die so that I could see Jesus. I don't know, the point of my life was something far deeper and, and richer than that. It was about a king and a kingdom. The biblical story continues. And the church isn't some weird side project that started because people got too excited about Jesus. That the church isn't a fan club. The church 
is God's new covenant kingdom people alive and at work in the world? You know how Peter describes the church? He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You, me, we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. God's special possession. Where did Peter get that idea from? It's almost as if he's been reading the Old Testament. It's almost as if the story of the scriptures is one coherent story. It's almost as if the story of king and kingdom is this thread that runs from the beginning to the end. And to be clear, there are ways in which we are significantly different from old covenant Israel. Jesus changed everything. The cross changed everything. The resurrection changed everything. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit changed everything. But let me tell you one thing that hasn't changed. God is still king. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden, and just like the Israelites through hundreds of pages of Old Testament struggle, we have to wrestle with the age-old human question. Will you allow God to be king? Not over the easy bits or the neat and tidy bits, but over everything. Not just when it's convenient or fashionable or easy, but all the time. And here's the thing. I think the the elephant in the room is that we tend to cringe a bit when we talk about coming under a king, don't we? I do. We're Americans. We, We were born by throwing off kingship. We fought very hard to not have a king. So why would I go back? To be honest, there are days when I sympathize with Adam and Eve, wanting to be their own kings. Certainly we feel that tug. And I can sympathize with Israel, wanting to be like all the other nations, rejecting God's kingship in order to do it. Because I think those continue to be two of our great temptations. God, can't I be my own king? Can't I just do what I want to do? Can't I be like all the other nations on earth? Can't I be like all my other friends? They do whatever they want. They worship whatever they want. They indulge in whatever they want. Sex, alcohol, Netflix, hedonism, whatever. Can't I be my own king? Can't I be like all the other nations? 
And just like he did with Israel, God is speaking to you and me. And he's saying, I haven't called you to be like everyone else. I saved you out of the world so that you would be a kingdom of priests, so that you would be my special possession, so that you would be my set-apart people, that you would come under my kingship and that you would live for the advancement of my kingdom. And whether you know it or not, and whether you see it or not, there is no better way to live. Because the true king of the universe is worthy of all that we have to give. And so as we end, um, you can go ahead and and clear off your lap if you want to. Um, I'll call the worship team back up. And uh, I just want us to sit for a few minutes before we head to the communion tables. And I, I want us to ask ourselves a very simple question. Is Jesus king over all of my life? Over my sexuality? Over my pride? Over my relationships? Over my finances? Over the things I do for fun? In our fear, I'll say in my fear, I tend to worry that Jesus is somehow out to spoil those things. That's why, we're, that's why I'm afraid of kingship. But in reality, he's not out to spoil those things. He's out to transform them. He's out to breathe new life into the dying corners of your soul. To, to bring life out of death, to bring beauty out of ashes. But you have to let him. You have to let him be king. So I'm going to say a quick prayer for us, and then uh, we'll just take a couple minutes uh, to sit, to reflect, to pray, to journal, to listen. And uh, as God whispers to you, uh, about those, those areas uh, in which we've withheld from his kingship. And, and as, as those things come to mind, I don't want us to feel some weird sense of condemnation in this place. That's not God. That's not his invitation. Um, but I do want to reissue that invitation that Jesus gave at the beginning of his ministry. He said, repent, turn, turn away from death, turn toward life. Turn away from the junk, turn toward God. Turn away from hopelessness, turn toward hope. Change course, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, God's rule and his reign. God's life and his spirit, his love, his peace, his transforming power are now available to you.
they are at hand, they're at your fingertips. All you have to do is say yes. Let's pray.